Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn to the book of Romans once again, Romans chapter 2. Hope you have a copy of the scriptures you can follow along. And if you do not have your own copy, we have some provided for you, and it's page 940 in the Pew Bible. We're going to be looking at, God willing, verses 17 to 24 this morning of Romans chapter 2. I don't know how many of you in this room have watched the movie The Prince's Bride before. It happens to be one of my favorites. And um, there are a variety of quotes by Unego Montoya that I appreciate. This is not my favorite, but it's one of my favorites. Do you remember when Unego Montoya said, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. Remember that? I, I feel that way about our topic today, and the word is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is one of those words that is often used, but I don't think it means what we think it means. You see, the word hypocrite comes from the Greek word Hippocrates. It means an actor or a stage player. It actually is something that we're probably more accustomed to now because of the pandemic, but it means to speak from underneath something, i.e. to speak underneath a mask. So to wear a mask, not the kind that many of us are wearing these days, but the kind of mask that would display a different character in a theatrical presentation. What would happen is along the marketplace, there would be presentations of plays, and during these plays, there would be actors, a series of actors. Now, in these cases, they would wear, they would have different masks because they would be displaying and acting as different characters in the same, the same play. Uh, we're not accustomed to the same actor performing in different parts during the same movie. Have you ever noticed, we noticed this the other night, one of my children appreciates the old shows, um, some of the black and white shows that I grew up watching, and so um, she appreciated watching old episodes of Green Acres. I don't know if you ever watched that show, uh, but I had an appreciation for it. Well, we were watching another show, a more current show, and one of the characters that was on Green Acres, and he was a goofball, he was on this show, but he wasn't a goofball. He was trying to be a serious detective. And we couldn't get over the fact that he was typecast. We knew him as the goofball on Green Acres. I mean, how can you be serious? How can you be taken serious? Well, that's really what a hypocrite is. It's someone who has put out a persona of someone they're really not. And it's an actor. So when we use the word, like Montoya says, we need to know what it means because the word hypocrite is thrown around now to refer to people that might have a different view of personal holiness than you do, and they are called a hypocrite. Or maybe it can be referred to as a person who makes a truth claim and pushes back against something that the culture is saying is okay, and they're referred to as a hypocrite. Or a hypocrite might be the title given to someone who doesn't always fully practice what they say they believe. And I hope as you learned last week as we studied the conscience, if that were the case and you were a hypocrite, anytime you didn't do exactly what you believe, we would all be what? Hypocrites. And some would call hypocrites people who do the right things, but inside they don't feel like doing the right things. Sometimes people call themselves hypocrites because they practice something, but inside they really don't want to practice it. I think we call that immaturity, not hypocrisy. Um, all of my children, as a parent, have grown in their ability to do things that they don't feel like doing, right? 
So I don't know that that is a definition of hypocrisy. In fact, if someone resists temptation, even when they're feeling like committing the sin, we call them a hero when they resist the sin and they submit to the spirit. We don't call them a hypocrite. So the, the word is used in often the wrong way because it means to simply not practice what you preach. A hypocrite is someone who proclaims something, who puts together this public image, but it covers up private sin. They are not really who they project themselves to be. And our passage today zeroes in on the psychology of hypocrisy. And it deposits itself and investigates what is the thinking of a hypocrite. And I want you to see this in our text, beginning in verse 17, going down to verse 24. And I do want to mention to you, again, that there is a word that is mentioned over and again. This is the, the rhetorical device of diatribe. He started the chapter off that way. You may remember that when we started chapter 2. And he's going to start talking to an imaginary person. He's going to use you and yourself a lot. I'm going to try to verbally highlight it. Verse 17 says, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you, then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written from Isaiah 52, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, embedded in this text, I believe, with a question, the definition of a hypocrite. Look at verse 21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Here's the question. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Can you say that with me? You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? What is the true definition of spiritual hypocrisy? Here it is. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And what he's going to give us in this text is four perspectives of the psychology of hypocrisy. And here they are, if you want to jot them down. We're just going to look at them briefly before we celebrate Lord's table. But here's the first one. How the hypocrite views himself. Secondly, how the hypocrite views other people. Thirdly, how the hypocrite views his walk and his talk. And finally, how God views the hypocrite. So first of all, how the hypocrite views himself. Well, he's very secure, and he has a lot of positive perspectives of his self-image. Look at this. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. So how does a hypocrite view themselves? What is their thought process? How would we know this morning if we are experiencing the psychology of hypocrisy? Well, you'll notice that they call themselves something. They like to be called by a name. This could be translated, you give yourself a nickname. We know what nicknames are like in our culture. But what he's saying here to the Jew is you want to be known to everybody around you as Jew. Now, that was a wonderful title. By calling themselves a Jew, they were giving themselves a nickname 
that was one of privilege and prosperity and blessing. They were God's chosen people. Remember, as you study the scriptures, they were known as the Hebrews based on the language that they spoke throughout the centuries prior to um, New Testament times. They were also called Israel based on the land that God had promised them through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But at the time of Christ, they were known simply as Jews. That came from the tribe of Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel. And that 12th tribe was also the title of the southern kingdom after the split of Solomon's death, after Solomon's death. And Judah means praise, and Jew was short for Judah. So when they would be referred to as Jews, it was a reference to their privileged position as God's chosen people. So when they said, we want to be called Jews, I want to be known as Jews, they were saying, there are privileges of being God's chosen people. He has them listed here. Look at them real quickly. I'm sorry, we're, we're struggling a little bit. I'm struggling a little bit with this new headset. We're getting another one soon. I have small ears. I've had them all my life, of course. And this one little hanger, I usually have two hangers, doesn't work real well on small ears. But the good news is my understanding is your ears and nose continue to grow throughout your life, so there's hope, right? <laughs> anyway, um, that's not good news for my nose. But, but back to the text. He says there are these privileges. Look at the first one. They rely on the law. They boast in God. Secondly, they know the will of God. Thirdly, and fourthly, they approve what is excellent. Do you see that in your text? They wanted to be known as Jews because they had all of the privileges. What were the privileges that they had? Well, first of all, they relied on the law. They were given the law at Mount Sinai. Now, remember, when he, you see the word law mentioned 20 times from verse 17 all the way down to the end of our, our chapter, he's referencing God's moral law. Real quickly, there are three divisions of the law. I've mentioned these to you before. There's God's moral law. That's how we're supposed to live. Basically, the Ten Commandments. There's God's, he gave them the ceremonial law or the civil, and the civil law. The ceremonial law was how they were to worship. The civil law was how the nation and society, their rules for governance. He's referring to the moral law here. And the Jews received it formally and they were relying on the privilege that they had of getting the law. They also boasted in God. This is a very positive thing. They bragged on their God. They also knew the will of God. Now, how did they know the will of God? Are you still with me? They knew the will of God because they had the what? The law of God. And fourthly, they approved what is excellent. They were able to actually take the law of God and make good choices on questionable issues. And look at how they got all of this. They got all of this because they were catechized. Do you notice this? It says that they were instructed from the law. So what this hypocrite does in the psychology of hypocrisy is they love a title. They love a nickname. They want to be known for something. And in this case, they wanted to be known as a Jew. And Paul is saying, listen, knowing someone by their nickname or their privileges is not the same thing as keeping your safe, yourself safe from the judgment of God. That will not keep you safe. Just because you were privileged to have the law and the Gentiles only had creation and conscience, you are not any safer because you got the law. But they thought that they were. Years ago, I have a friend, I still have a friend in New Hampshire, but one of the things I've noticed about my friend is he has changed jobs a lot He's also always secured a very good job, 
And I was always curious about when he would change jobs, he, would, he had this way about interviews. And I asked him about it once. I said, what do you do in these interviews that you get so prepared for and excited about? Well, he said, I got a brag book, Brian. I said, a brag book? What's that? He said, well, the brag book has it's like this big photo album, and he showed it to me. It was really nicely laid out. He said, these are basically all my accomplishments over my career. And when I had these interviews, I, I began to tell them all of the experiences that I've had and the things that I've accomplished, and that helps me sell myself so that I could get the job. I said, oh, that's kind of interesting. Well, that's kind of what the Jews were doing. You remember Paul said this in Philippians 3? He said, I was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. But then he said, when I found Christ, I had to take all of those frequent flyer miles of good works, and I had to put them on the refuse pile of the manure pile and to say, I want to know Christ. Here's the question about the hypocrite. How do you view yourself? What do you rely on right now? So let's start with the obvious one. We are more like the Jews than you might understand. You may say, well, this doesn't have any application to me. I'm a Gentile. But think about this. Do you ever consider yourself safe from God's judgment simply because you have been born into a Christian family? Maybe because you've been baptized. Perhaps because you made a profession of faith. Some consider themselves Christians almost virtually by default because they begin to say, well, I've been born into a Christian country. That's the major religion in the United States. And I've had all of these privileges. It's kind of the national heritage. That's my concern with the teaching on infant baptism, that oftentimes in this teaching, there's some idea that through the covenant, there is some transferal of salvation just because you were raised into a family of believers. This is not much different than what the Jews were saying. Our pedigree, our genealogy, it makes us safe from the coming judgment. But I also want you to see that this is not only about eternal salvation and trusting in that. Hypocrisy often does this. It loves nicknames. It loves to be known for something. And in this case, they want to be called a Jew. I thought about this this week. What do I want to be known for? You know, there's always a big gap between how we perceive ourselves and how others perceive us. And we're deceived if we don't understand that, right? I mean, how we perceive that we're perceived is not how we're perceived. But there's also this gap between what we want to be known for and what we really are. And sometimes, like the Jew that wanted to be called a Jew, you'll see this even amongst those who are Christians. Maybe you want to be known as a Baptist. Maybe you want to be known as conservative. Maybe you want to be known as a non-denominational. Maybe you want to be known as the marriage guru. Or maybe you want to be known as the parent guru. Or I really understand prayer. Or if you want to talk evangelism, I'm that guy. Or maybe you want to be the social justice warrior. And everybody who has any questions about any of this, you are the guru. That's your tag. And what these Jews were doing is they were saying, you know what, all the privileges and all the knowledge, we have the law. We not only know God's will, but when there's a question, we can get down into the dirt and we can figure out what God really wants. We can examine it because we have been catechized. Is there that possibility even amongst the believers today? I, I think there is, that there's this desire for viewing yourself and wanting to have the nickname. My daughter, Brianna, could not say 
her daughter, her sister's, not her daughter, her sister's name when she was born. So she called her sissy. And while I was a youth pastor for nine years, all of those kids that grew up in that youth name was Carissa. All they knew was it was sissy. That was her nickname. It stayed with her. You know, there are nicknames that we can look for just like the Jews. This is what we want to be known for. And I do not want to be known for trying to keep this thing on my ear. So I am going to the pulpit, Mike, please. Send me the pulpit mic. I'm about to die. I want to throw this thing. Back to the sound booth in just a minute. All right. Point number two, how the hypocrites view others. Superiority. Look at this, verses 19 to 20. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So how do hypocrites view other people? Well, they view themselves very secure. I have all of these privileges. I'm all set. I'm safe from the ultimate judgment of God. But how do they view others? They view others from a perch of superiority. Now, let's not miss this. The Jews were supposed to teach the Gentiles. In fact, God appointed Abraham and the Jews to be a blessing to all what? Nations. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be what? They'll be blessed. And we were told that in the scriptures that the Jews were supposed to look at their display of God and his character and his salvation. And it was to be a come and see moment. But now they had turned from that and they had looked down at those who they were supposed to be teaching and helping and giving the truth to. So rather than looking to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth, they looked at their privilege as superiority as they looked down on others. Notice what they say here. We we are the ones to help blind people. We're the ones to help those who don't know. They're foolish. We're going to be their instructors. So the knowledge had done what? Exactly what you find in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. It had puffed them up. It had made them proud. Here's a question for all of us. When we view the privileges that we have of owning a Bible. So this morning, most of us in this room have your own Bible in your lap. Just that privilege, have you ever viewed it as this is God's great privilege to me, but with privilege comes responsibility? With these Jews and with the hypocrisy, no. The knowledge actually caused them to look down on others. I don't know if you ever had this experience, but in college I had this experience. I had a few professors who everybody was intimidated by, and no one ever asked a question because they knew they would get annihilated and humiliated if they asked a question. I had one professor that I just adored because he was so knowledgeable. Happened to be German, his name was Gunther Salter. And uh, I, I, adored him, I adored him because he was he's brilliant, but I also adored him because he, he was so sarcastic. I just thought it was funny. Uh, one time I remember he came to chapel. This would happen every now and then. The president would say, you get a free day. You don't have to go to classes. And so particularly all the freshmen would just go crazy. We're like, we get a free day. You know, we're shouting in chapel. It was fun. And then he would get up there and say, you stupid freshman. He goes, you pay for a day of school, and when you don't get what you pay for, you celebrate, you stupid freshman. <laughs> this is the way he was. Well, no one wanted to ask him any questions because he was very intimidating. Now that I've looked back at that from a perspective of, of maybe a little more maturity, I don't think that was a good thing. He looked down on those that were the, the, the peons who didn't know. And, th- and this is a, kind of the way the Jews were. Instead of using their privileges to serve and disciple others, they had a sense of superiority. So let's ask ourselves today. You 
maybe have in your mind right now what you'd like to be known for, but do you view yourself as owning an issue or actually helping individuals? Do you care about showing your knowledge or actually discipling? Do you think whenever the topic comes up that you are the guru, that you are the one that knows all about it, that you should be consulted, you should be referenced, you should be brought in as a consultant? Maybe it's outreach, maybe it's evangelism, maybe it's prayer, maybe it's racial and social justice, maybe it's children's ministry. What is your thing? Do you use your knowledge and your experience and how God has shepherded you to help others and serve others? Or do you use it as an opportunity to put down others and use it as a sense of superiority? Do you use it as something to intellectually judge other people who don't have all of the knowledge that you have? You see, this is what the Jews were doing. They had all these privileges, but this is a psychology of hypocrisy. Rather than being grateful for the privileges and using those to serve other people, it was a serious sense of pride and superiority. So that's how the hypocrite views other people. That's how the hypocrite views themselves. You who teach others, do you not teach yourself also? But now I want you to see, how does the hypocrite view his walk and his talk? Look at verses 21 to 22. He asks this question, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? So here it is, here's hypocrisy. You preach and teach and say one thing, but you do another. Now he goes right after the Ten Commandments here. He uses three of them. There's not to be any idolatry, there's not to be any stealing, there's not to be any idol ad adultery. What were they doing in this case? Well, it was well known, even Jesus confronted those that he taught in the Gospels that they were saying no stealing, but they were taking money. They were giving out money in the offering plate, and they were doing it in a very um, proud way, but they were stealing money from their parents and other places. They were also guilty of adultery. They were guilty of adultery primarily because of their no-fault divorce. Basically, if a man didn't like his wife for any reason, he could divorce her. You burn his toast, divorced. And Jesus said, except for the cause of fornication, adultery, immorality, you, you are actually committing adultery. And how were they robbing temples? We're, we're not exactly sure, but Josephus and other historians say that what they were doing is they would say, idolatry is sin and wicked. But then they would go in and steal idols from the pagan temples because they knew they weren't really idols and these weren't really gods, and they would sell them and make money off of them. So by saying, no to idolatry, but I'm going to make some money off of your little idol there all, all of this is hypocrisy and he was saying you your walk and your talk don't match up and this is the essence of hypocrisy so let's ask ourselves is there a big gap between our walk and our talk well, certainly there's always some gap isn't there until we're made like Jesus there's going to be a gap between our walk and our talk but, but what he's saying here is this 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 idea that you can cover up your private life and not reflect and see your character transformed while you have this public image. There's a contradiction here between profession and practice. And these are a series of devastating questions that he's asking the hypocrite. Do you remember this in James? I've mentioned this to you before, but James is writing a Jewish audience. And he says that there is a group of you that you hear the word, but you don't what? Are you still with me? You don't what? You don't do it. 
And, and he's using the illustration, although it's not apples for apples today, but it was basically like what happens when you audit a college class. Anybody ever done that in the room? The beauty of auditing a college class is this. You get to enjoy the lecture, the PowerPoints, the videos, everything. But you don't have to take the test or the quizzes or do the papers. It's beautiful, right? That's auditing a class. That might be a beautiful thing to do in college or university or some other class, but it's a horrible thing to do with the Word. People who audit the Word, they, they just get more and more information, but they never put it into practice in their life. I want to ask you, when you hear preaching, here is the psychology of a hypocrite. This always undoes us. Do you hear preaching? Do you read books? Do you read the scriptures with an ear for others or for yourself? When you hear a message, for instance, and there is a point of application, is your first response, I wish they were here. Where are they? They need this. <laughs> or, or is it, oh God, what are you saying to me? When you, when you read something or you're like, i got to post that because I hope so-and-so sees it. Or is it, oh Lord, here I am standing in the need of prayer. You see, the psychology of hypocrisy is to hear the word and think about others who need it rather than yourself. Now, as I prepared this message this week, I, I kept thinking of James 3.1. Don't let there be many teachers because we're going to receive the greater judgment. And here's the scary thing for people like me that have the privilege of speaking to you on many Sundays is I'm going to receive the greater judgment because I say so much. And some of you want to say amen right now, but I say so much. It's going to be greater accountability. And I also thought this week that I, I fall into this sin often, and I... I'm going to confess it to you. The possibility of preparing a message and thinking about what I want to say to you rather than what it says to my own heart first is easy to do. It's really easy to do. It's sinful. It's hypocritical. It's wrong. I confess it to you. I hope you'll forgive me. But it's, 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 it's something that you can normally fall into. You can think about how can I say that so they understand it rather than, God, what are you saying to my own heart? about the own hypocrisy that I have. When you hear messages, how do, you, how do you process them? When you hear the word, maybe another question to ask here on this point is, when was the last time that you were either reading the word, hearing a message, reading a devotional, having a conversation with another believer, the spirit of God uses his word to convict you and it led you to repentance and to change. To, to experience some of that 2 Corinthians 3.18 where you're being changed, metamorphosized from one glory to another to be made into the image of Christ by the Spirit of God. When was the last time that happened? When was the last time you were broken over a sin habit and you confessed it to God? And you have seen change, supernatural transformation in that area. Can you even remember that moment? You see, the psychology of hypocrisy, which is easy for all of us fallen creatures to fall into, is to listen to the word for either more information. We want to become theologians. We want to become doctrinally sound and orthodox. That's what we want to be at East Brandywine. Rather than saying, God, change this life to be more like Jesus. And what was happening here is they were really good at articulating messages, preaching and teaching and saying what's right and what's wrong. 
They had all the catechisms all laid out. But their life was not being changed. So you who teach others, do you not teach what? Who? Yourself. First of all, how does a hypocrite view himself? Very secure because of his privileges. How does he view others with superiority? How does he view his walk and talk? There's this big gap between the two. Finally, how does God view the hypocrite? Look at the last two verses of our text, verses 23 and 24. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of who? Because of you. These are startling words. So he, he comes down, and, and the climax of this actually is going to be the text for next week that Pastor Matt will be preaching from. But, but here he takes this, and he quotes from Isaiah 52. And he, he's saying, your hypocrisy is actually causing my name to be dishonored and for my name to be blasphemed among the unbelievers. So while you're considering yourself a teacher and a preacher, your contradictory, hypocritical lifestyle is causing my name to be dishonored and blasphemed. Now, he references Isaiah 52.5. If you want to write that down, you probably have that in your cross-reference. But Isaiah 52.5 is referencing the Babylonian captivity. It's referencing God's people in captivity because they had sinned. Now, there's the, there's the obvious application here that our lifestyle choices as God's people can either dress up the gospel and bring fame to the name of our Lord or bring shame to the name of our Lord. Okay, that's the obvious one here, right? That's the low-lying fruit, which means that all of us as believers need to ask ourselves the lifestyle choices that we make in front of believers, the way you are an employee or an employer or a manager or a small business owner or whatever you are in the workplace, and you rub shoulders with unbelievers, do your lifestyle choices, do your obedience to the word of God as it's obvious to all humans, does it bring fame to the name of the Lord or does it dishonor and blaspheme his name? This is an obvious question. In, in the book of Titus, he actually tells us that we dress up the gospel by our good works. And we don't earn God's favor, but, but we actually bring fame to the name by our obedience to the word. That's why being in New England for 20 years, we were there during the Roman Catholic priest sex scandal. And I remember neighbors, because it's a majority of Catholics in New England, I remember neighbors and the disgust and the, and the holding the head low and, 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 and being so disillusioned because of what had taken place. I mean, there are many of us in this room that feel the same way about recent scandals with people like Robbie Zacharias. These things grieve our hearts when we say somebody who proclaims something so boldly and so clearly, yet underneath there was such scandal and such perversity. This blasphemes the name of God. But, but that's the low-lying fruit actually here. It's not the context. The context might surprise you. He's talking about them being in captivity because of their sin and by them receiving the chastisement and the punishment by God for their sin, being in captivity, that's what blasphemed the name of the Lord. I mean, why are God's people being punished by the unbelievers? And when you go to Isaiah 52, you find out that actually what's taking place there is they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. Those are the exact words of another text, aren't they? 
2 Timothy chapter 3 says that there's coming a day, and I believe we live in it, where people will have an outward appearance of religiosity, but they will deny the supernatural power thereof. I want you to see that same word, an appearance of godliness, is the same word found in our text when it says you have an embodiment of knowledge and truth. Do you see that in your text? Shake your head if you see it. It says that you have the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That is the same word for appearance. It looks like you have it all together. But the truth of the matter is you have, you have cleaned up the outside of the cup, but you have not dealt with the inside. So how can this hypocrisy be exposed? God says that you have dishonored my name and you've also blasphemed my name among the Gentiles. I want you to turn, please, to Isaiah 52 right now and see that text as we conclude. Because I want you to see that he's not just dealing with one select group of people. He, he, he's saying that everyone here, every human, just like the pagans, all of these religious ones are guilty of the same thing. They're all hypocrites. They've all blasphemed the name of God. And every time they disobey the word and every time they, they, they make choices that dishonor the name of God... They are hypocrites. Look at this in verse number 5 of Isaiah 52. He says, Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Talking about their captivity. Their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is he who I speak. Here am I. And then here's the text about the gospel. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publish peace, who bring good news of happiness, who publish salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. What God does in this text is he unmasks every one of them and he says, you're all hypocrites. So today the biggest sin is not to participate in the sins of the pagans. The biggest sin today in our world is to be a bigot or a hypocrite or self-righteous. In fact, you've all heard it. People are actually self-righteous about not being self-righteous today. <laughs> I mean, that, that's what they're self-righteous about. I'm self-righteous because I'm not self-righteous. Okay. All right. We're all in the mess. We, we all have the facade. We all have the mask. And he pulls it off and he says, there's only one solution and it's my servant coming. The whole book of Isaiah, and he's leading up to this with quoting Isaiah 52, is you need a servant to come and take the punishment of his religious people. All of their righteousness is as filthy rags, and you need someone to take on that iniquity who is righteous so that they can be made righteous. Folks, that is where Isaiah 53 comes in. And before I read that, I just want to ask you something. How is it possible... That church-going people, members of churches, good Bible-preaching churches who have pastors who are true to the word can be sitting for decades lost, unsaved, unregenerate on a church roll in a Bible-preaching church. How does that happen? Well, I mentioned this to you before. Over 200 years ago, the first great awakening took place in New England. The 1740s churches were populated by tens of thousands of church members and the first great awakening did not happen outside the church. It happened inside the church. George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards were preaching and the Lord sent a great awakening. It shook the congregations to the core, to the foundations. 
Some statistics say 30 to 40,000 New Englanders came to genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Now, with a population in New England at the time of only 250,000, that's a lot of people. My question to you is, how does that happen? How, how do people who have been in church, have been members of a church, have been hearing the word exposited week in and week out, sit in a church pew unconverted? Well, the reason is because exactly what Paul is confronting in Romans 2. He, he's saying you call yourself something, you're big on your names, you're big on your privileges, but you have not humbled yourself, repented, and allowed the Spirit of God to regenerate your heart. And these people were miraculously born again. And maybe I'm speaking to some longtime church members here today, and you reflect on your spiritual privilege. Maybe you reflect on spiritual activity. You've served the Lord, and you've done this and that. Folks, the mass needs to come off, and we need to admit that all we can do is boast in the righteousness of the servant king. And I want you to stand now before we celebrate Lord's table. Please stand with me. Let's read Isaiah 53. He came to rescue not only the, the prodigals, but the Pharisees. Amen? Who has believed what has he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. All God's people said, our elders are going to come and prepare to serve you, Lord's table. Let's sing together, O oh, the blood.